Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. My name is Darren Calhoun. My pronouns are he, him. And today I am joined by Stacy. Hey. Sarah. Hey, everyone. Kevin. Hey there. And we have a very, very, very special guest with us today. Um, as we've been continuing our series on gender, we've been looking at the various ways that uh, gender um, intersects with our lives in the church and with the world. And so um, I totally wanted to have one of my good friends, co-laborers in ministry. I could get really evangelical here, so I'm going to tamper that back a little bit. It's fine to be evangelical, but I slip into like there's a whole tongue there. (laughs) She's already rolling her eyes at me. Um, But uh, one of my friends who has been um, doing this work of justice, doing this work of speaking up, showing up um, from the margins, doing the work of theology that comes from below, doing this work of teaching us about what intersectionality looks like, um, what it looks like to be an ally, what it looks like to be someone who is using their voice, using their bodies, using their experience to and the way I would put it is make the world a better place for everybody in it. And so uh, I'm so glad to introduce to all of you, um, or to at least some of you, uh, my good friend, Ana Jelsey Velasco Sanchez. Let's give it up. Yeah. <laughs> very youth, youth, youth pastor, very all that. Hi, Ana Jelsey. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So good that you could be here. What's, what's popping? You know, living that that uh, wildlife in DC where it's 8 p.m. and I'm thinking about bed. Yes. <laughs> yes. I can't remember if we're the same generation or not, but we're all getting to that age where, like, thinking about bed before it's time for bed is oh, yeah. such a wonderful. I mean, I don't know what age you are, but spiritually, I'm like 75. So, <laughs> <laughs> ready. Yes. Yes. Cool. So, um, Ana Jelsey, why don't you tell tell the people what you want them to know about who you are and where you come from? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Ana Jelsey. My pronouns are she, her. And um, I am from Venezuela. Uh, so I'm Venezolana. I'm a Latina uh, of indigenous descent. I'm someone who identifies as a mujerista, um, which means I'm about uh, raising up women and liberative stories um, from scripture and from our lives and from the world. Um, and I'm an artist so and a writer. So if I don't get a chance to say something, I'm going to paint it. I'm going to write it. But one way or another, I'm probably running my mouth. So <laughs> that's me. Love it. Yeah, I love it. And Anna Jelsey was one of the uh, contributors who created the artwork that is um, on my band's most recent uh, full album, um, and so like I've loved I've loved her art. Um, we have co-taught in um, anti-racism efforts uh, with organizations. Um, we've done conferences together. Conferences. Uh, <laughs> Oh, the conference world. We're going. We are going to talk a little bit about like the non the nonprofit industrial complex, if you will. Ooh, yeah, because <laughs> we can talk about that. Because I, I, you know, <laughs> let me just let me just slip right in, right? You know, because I, I need to process my trauma. So there's this thing where organizations that are mission driven. So whether that's a church, a nonprofit your neighborhood block club, whatever, like where it's about like some kind of ideal. I've been seeing this pattern and my good friend Dante Hilliard kind of named this, this pattern of the, in the same way that individuals who do a lot of care for others tend to not be great about caring for themselves, that mission-driven organizations who are caring for like people or caring for these like, you know, like world issues tend to not care for their people mm-hmm. very Ooh. well at all. Yep. Y'all bringing me back. <laughs> all right. Like collective moment of like, oh, yes. that. Takes us back to our like first episode there yeah. of uh, trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was going to say the trauma from those experiences is why I have like ventured out on, on my own outside of these like organizations and, and, and whatnot to, to do the work that I'm doing nowadays because 
for for yeah for places that are all about justice and and liberation and even healing sometimes really toxic um mm-hmm. so yeah i needed a break from that i hear you um even even as i was thinking about that uh when when i emailed you for for this uh recording you have a an autoresponder and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm telling my therapist about this. <laughs> could you could you tell me some more about about this autoresponder and what happens sure. when people email you? Sure. Um, so my autoresponder was inspired actually uh, by Jade uh, T. Perry, and because Jade has something similar on on their email, and I um, and I have I'm somebody who's dealing and more and more over the last year have been dealing with medical issues and chronic pain. And then just the run of the mill, like anytime you do movement work where you don't take care of yourself and you, and you're do a poor job with boundaries and, and timekeeping and, you know, all, all the things um, where you're keeping like 30 hour days and 24 hours. Um, And so I put up this responder similar to Jade's where I just tell people like, I am trying to hold my, to an ethic that I tell other people they should be holding themselves to, which is to care for our bodies and to care for our minds and our spirits and to recognize our limitations. Um, and so, and that I am, everything I do, I want it to be relationally focused, which means I'm not a hamster running on a wheel who's like, I got to respond to that email because it's been 12 hours. I got to, I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm going to do whatever I need to do in the time that it takes and the in the most relational way I can do it. And sometimes that means I don't get to things um, in the time frame others might think I should. So I just let people know upfront, it's not gonna happen the way you might think it's gonna happen. Um, but that I do care what they have going on. But yeah. Is this an like, email? Yes. Is it an email responder? Like yeah, anytime you send me an email, it bounces right back to you with my response. I, I love should. that. I, yeah. I should set that up for all of my accounts. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I, and I love that. I love, because I've always known you to be someone who, who incorporates this very holistic view. It's, it's never been just about, oh, well, we we're fighting for this one cause or this one thing. It has been, what does it mean for us to show up? What are our, what are our bodies saying? What are our Mm -hmm. senses saying? Like what, where, can you tell us more about like where this kind of radical, if you will, um, holistic view comes from? Where, where'd you get that? Uh, so, I mean, it's certainly not a, a creation of my own. It's from reading and listening and learning from, um, to be frank, mostly women of color and, and a lot of Black women and Indigenous women. Um, and that, you know, their wisdom, then figuring out, well, how do, what does that look like in my public ethic and how I, my practice for how I do the work I do and what does that look like in my personal life. And if I'm being really honest, cause I don't want to give this impression out there of like, Oh, so I, you know, learned about boundaries and, and taking care of yourself. And now I'm just like doing awesome. Uh, cause I'm not, um, I mentioned, you know, off, off, uh, off camera that I, uh, got in trouble with my therapist today. Cause I am still practicing the boundaries thing with myself and didn't do a good job this week. <laughs> of paying attention and listening to my body. Um, so it's an ongoing, uh, journey, but it, we lose people constantly in this work. We lose them. Literally. We lose, they, we lo- they lose their lives sometimes, um, at their own hand and it's devastating. Um, and it's because of the, the pressure we put on one another and ourselves to do the work in a certain way. Um, we lose people, uh, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, where they're just like, we're done. I can't do this anymore. You've taken everything I have to give. You took more than I even offered. Um, and, and people walk away when they could have been a part of things. It should be a lifetime journey towards, you know, towards liberation together. And instead it's, it's like hop in, hop out because you can't handle it long, like for that long. And that's because we don't set people up to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you talk more about that? Like, uh, what what kind of experiences have you had in the church where you've been church or church related, you know, parachurch stuff where you've been asked for more? And, you know, what does that look like for you? Sure. So one of the examples that I wrote about a while back was, um, you know, we mentioned doing all these conferences and stuff. I've 
there was another version of Anna Jelsey who was that conference life was like, <laughs> you know, there was like a conference every time I turned around. And a lot of times I was one of the people running the conference and like stage managing and planning the, you know, literally planning the event. Um, and at that time in my life, I, one, I wasn't being as honest as I could about my chronic illnesses and stuff because it felt like a thing that I couldn't tell and still be welcomed into the work. Um, and certainly not at the degree that I was like, oh, we, we can't make use of you if you're going to disappear, if you're going to go be sick, if you're, um, if your chronic migraines and your chronic back pain are preventing you from like showing up when we tell you to show up. Um, and so there were events where I remember very vividly going and being like physically ill, um, in the bathroom repeatedly, not like a one-time thing, but go speak, lead a session, go be sick, come back, lead another session, go be sick. And I would do that all day long. Um, and so some of it was that I wasn't being honest about what I needed in my limitations, but some of it also was when I was honest, it wasn't received or heard in the way I needed to be by the rest of my team. And, and so what, normally happens when you're sick is you get dejected, you're, you're maybe not like, you know, upbeat and emotions on point and all this stuff. And so I got a lot of criticism for, you got an attitude, you seem kind of out of it. You're like, <laughs> like, look, what's going on? Are you not be a team player? And I'm like, well, I'm dying in the bathroom every hour, but, but I'm trying. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That is not a sustainable life. Hmm. Wow. And it's, it's making me think about, um, the ways, again, you know, like the, the the gendered ways that this has kind of happened because when a man is sick, all of a sudden, like women turn turn into like, they have to be their mother at Air work, takers. you know, like mm-hmm. take care of the man and make sure he's okay. And I, I think more often than not, I've experienced being cared for mm. when I'm sick. That sounds but, but what is that? What is, what is that <laughs> like? been like for women and, you know, everybody on the call, feel free to speak up because I'm still learning about my male privileges. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, I'm not in any way, it's not like everyone I've ever encountered when working in big nonprofits or, you know, working in institutions were heartless or don't care or, you know, um, it's not that at all. I think we all just get so caught up in like, there's this, ur- there's almost a false urgency because to be frank, like the conference you're throwing on, it's not the same as a direct action in the streets where we're immediately trying to intervene in someone's life being taken. Right. You shouldn't have the same degree of urgency at that conference as you do at that direct action. And yet somehow that's what we're asking people to bring at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I think as a, as a woman, um, and just generally for women, like we're taught not to talk about our pain anyway. Um, so we don't bring it up. Like I said, I have my own responsibility and that I wasn't naming it as oftenly or as honestly as I probably could have. Um, and then I think there's also a conscious and sometimes conscious, sometimes not a tendency to, to dismiss women's pain as like, oh, you're being hyperbolic or exaggerating or, um, especially if it's a persistent thing and I'm like, oh, that one always with the headaches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I can relate to that. I I am a migraine. I've suffered with them all my life since I was probably like 10 and didn't realize that what I was having was migraines until I was like 30 because I didn't have the typical symptoms mm. that migraine sufferers have. And, and I finally went to my doctor and I'm like, I get these tension headaches and he's like, honey, those are not tension headaches. You are having migraines consistently because one previous doctor had put me on um, muscle relaxants and stuff like that. And I wasn't getting any, and some were just taking, say, take Tylenol. And I was like, like taking extreme amounts of Tylenol and nothing would change, you know, and it leave, nothing would happen. And so finally, you know, I go see a neurologist and they're like, yeah, you're having migraines and they last 72 hours every single time. And, you know, when you're down for the count for three days and if you can only take two pills in three days and they make you sleepy. So it's like, okay, do I suffer through or do I take a pill and then have to sleep or whatever? And so there was time when I was working in the corporate world and that's when I was discovering that it was migraines. And 
if I took off, depending on which boss I went to, I would get more sympathy. So my female boss, she was fabulous. But one of my male bosses, he was like, oh, you're taking off again. Like, what's going on? Are you having your period again? And I'm like, what the fuck? It's none of your business, you know? But hello. Yeah, Kevin, I see your face. (laughs) Everything is a period. Like, Sorry, yeah, it just just boggles my mind that people still ask Everything is a period. But it's like, imagine having your monthly cycle. And some people experience a lot of pain with their Mm -hmm. monthly cycle and having a chronic illness. I mean, I I can relate to that. I, I was... 32 years old when I got diagnosed with a blood disorder that causes me to essentially be anemic for the rest of my life. And if anyone knows anything about anemia, you're tired, you get headaches, you, I mean, the symptoms come and they go. And so that fatigue, I mean, and I, I was fighting with this, didn't have a name for it, didn't know what was going on in my body when I was in leadership for a nonprofit. Um, you know, so I'm in a a position that has lots of responsibility. I have lots of people counting on me. And I, there were many times that I'm like fighting to focus in meetings or I'm like the minute I can like take a break because, you know, many of us in the nonprofit world don't actually take breaks. You're in leadership, you work through them. But there were times that I literally like was falling asleep in my car like parked somewhere like away from the office so no one would see me just so that I can like focus the rest of the day because I you know I had this I was my own worst enemy I had my I had this very much like I was raised very suck it up cupcake mm-hmm. you know push through and I did not take care of myself and finally going to the doctors and they're like you know oh, wow, like you actually have a genetic disorder. And like, I've been dealing with this like for a good portion of my life off and on. Yeah. And that's the thing with migraines and um, um, and with your diagnosis and with the things that I have, like a lot of times, like the things that we're feeling are like lethargy and just exhaustion and you're like lifting an arm feels like you did a full body workout. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so because we're not taught to like, listen and pay attention to our bodies and care for ourselves, particularly as women. Um, and we're taught to like, be there, be present and get, you know, get the shit done that needs to get done um, and deal with your issues later. When you physically can't, sometimes the narrative, at least for myself, I don't want to speak for you two, um, that you start to tell yourself is, oh, I'm just, I'm being lazy or I'm not being a team player or like, I gotta, what is going on with me? Like, like, this is, I'm better than this. I'm stronger than this. I'm like, no, your body is your body. Like you have physical limitations. Right. Yeah. I think part of that too, like when you work in the church and uh, then your church people are like, oh, something must be wrong. Mm -hmm. We need to pray. Mm -hmm. And then because you haven't been healed because we've prayed for you, then something's spiritually wrong. And then it just, you know, there's more that goes on that. And then you feel like even more exasperated because of all that, yeah. because of that pressure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. like working. Well, now, in, cause now not only are you lazy, you're a bad Christian, right? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Something sinful in my life, preventing me or lack of faith, preventing me from being healed from mm-hmm. these migraines, but they prayed for me. For but that's the thing with chronic illness is yeah. that it doesn't, you learn to live with it. You learn to manage exactly. it. It doesn't just go away. I can't mm-hmm. get rid of this genetic disorder that I have. It's genetic. I was born with it apparently. (laughs) Like, right. You know, I can't pray it away. I can't, I can get better at self-care and managing the symptoms and being responsible for myself to voice boundaries and know when I need to rest and actually resting and not, you know, I related when, (laughs) you know, Anadelsi, when you said that you, you know, just kept going and you, you kind of just push through and that's been something I've done all my life. So sometimes I have to just say, okay, it's okay to take a nap. I'm not lazy. Like I can rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's reworking muscles and learning to do things differently. Yeah. Oh. As, hey, Darren, I, you are, you are muted while you're unmuting. I just wanted to <clears> jump <throat> in and say um, that like all of that, everything that y'all are, are expressing right now is something that I heard in just Christian circles growing up. Um, and something I've been feeling rather passionately about the last few years is that Jesus says, uh, the greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor. But we always forget the last part of that statement, love your neighbor 
as yourself. And so, which I think kind of also explains kind of Western Christianity in general, because if if these are the things that that we're telling ourselves that I need to push through and I need to work harder and I'm not good enough if I feel bad, then obviously that's going to be what we tell other people. And that's going to be the way that we uh, love on, you know, air quotes here, uh, volunteers. I know it's it makes me gag every time um, on volunteers or the people around us. But we need to take care of ourselves. We need to love others well, like we love ourselves well. Um, and I just like I said, that's something I've been feeling rather passionately about the last few years mm-hmm. is getting Christians to understand that you have to take care of yourself and caring about the way you look isn't a bad thing. Caring about your health isn't a bad thing. Going to a therapist isn't a bad thing. Um, And I'll wrap up with apologizing again. If you can hear my kids, they are taking a bath right now. Love it. The kids are, are being cared for. It's a beautiful thing. My wife is loving them as she loves herself. Kevin actually does actively participate in raising his children. It's not something that we refer to as babysitting. Right. <laughs> Another term that makes me gag. <laughs> right. right. Um, one of the things I was thinking about as I was listening to, to everyone is the history of uh of two things there's a there's a there's a a racist history to western medicine and there's Mm -hmm. also a gendered biased history to western medicine um things like the word hysterical was a medical term that basically meant that a woman's internal uh organs i'm trying to uh reach for the right word um yeah basically that 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 her her organs have come detached inside of her body and that they're moving around and that that's causing this hysterical behavior. And sometimes the answer to hysteria was a hysterectomy. Like, yes. Wait, cringe. is that is that where that comes from? The the his the the, the that's why I'm I'm trying to remember the the actual English word because I'm losing and I need more sleep. Um <laughs> I'm gonna invent a time machine just to go back in time and slap. I think everybody pre nineteen. There's actually an amazing pre two thousand twenty. There's an amazing movie called Hysteria mm-hmm. um, that goes into this, um, and I won't get into too much detail as to, as to as to what the film's about, but into some of the other solutions that were provided for women with hysteria. But yeah, like you would get diagnosed. Basically, you showed emotions. Therefore, you were diagnosed with hysteria, and you could be committed. You could have like any if you had any in the first place legal rights taken away, like because you showed emotion. Yeah. And and then at some point that got codified. You know, some dude basically was like, "Oh, this is what this is." And people said, "Oh, yes, yes, let's not agree." And then they wrote it in a book and it became quote unquote true. Yeah. <laughs> oh um, my god. A, <laughs> right. Um and in similar <laughs> fashion, the the origins of gynecology oh. are this horrible um enslaver who was like, you know, I'm going to go out back and experiment on the women's bodies who are to me. And they are black and therefore they don't need, they have a, they don't need any kind of anesthesia or anything to to numb pain because they don't have the same human tolerances for pain because they're beasts of burden. Mm -hmm. And his very literal experimenting on living pain experiencing black women were the foundations of gynecology as an entire field of study and so inherent in so many of our medical things right now there's a big push to 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 name um there's a certain kind of kidney function that um that if it's below this threshold, then they say, oh, you're, you're not well, you need major, major emergency attention. But if it's above a threshold, um, then you're pretty much okay and considered normal. And for Black people, there's a different number. <laughs> 
Um, and so on medical forms, on insurance things, all these things are, are, are systematized to say that Black people don't need the same amount of care for the same symptoms because they weren't accurately considered. And this is my last story, and then I'll let somebody else talk. There's also um, for uh, the diagnosis of, um, of autism is almost the history and the, the medical research that has established that is almost entirely white men or boys. Yep. And so to this day, it's hard to get a diagnosis for autism for women because it just wasn't researched. And basically two dudes said, oh, this is what this is. That's what that is. My name is Asperger. So the quote unquote high functioning boys, <laughs> they get my name. And the rest of them, they're not really useful. So we're just going to like institutionalize. Yep. So, yeah. So navigating the medical industry, that's got to be fun. Yeah, I mean, it's been even recent months in dealing with, with medical stuff for myself. I mean, it's just been a reminder that it's not built for us. It's not, um, or actually not, I'll clarify that, that it's built for white men and maybe white women. And if it is white women, it's white women within a certain body type mm -hmm. um, with certain abilities. Um, so I'm a brown, fat woman of color with chronic pain conditions, like, and it's just not, it's not set up for me. Um, it's been, a, yeah, I, so I had a, a new medical diagnosis about um, a month and a half ago now that I'm still uh, learning to now live my life with because this will be a lifelong journey. Um, and they started out, the doctor started out by prescribing me an obscene amount of medication, which I didn't find out until after the fact. And when I say after the fact, I mean when I ended up in the ER, um, that what they had prescribed me was double than what was appropriate. Um, and so there was a reason that I was, was as like deathly ill as I was. Um, and then to have new medications prescribed and basically just going back and forth between horrible reactions to different medications and just kind of having stuff me with very little conversation, with phone calls not being returned, with messages not being responded to, where I'm feeling like I'm having to chase people down and say, hey, you gave me a brand new life altering diagnosis. Could I have a conversation with someone? The way I was told my diagnosis was in a one sentence email that said, your blood test showed the following. Wow. It, it, which is <sighs> like, oh, I feel so humanized and cared for. Um, and you're forced to do the research exactly. to figure out like what you're supposed to do with it. Yep. Like becoming yeah. an expert on my own time. Exactly. Yeah. So that I can take care of my life because nobody else is answering my questions. Right. I finally saw a new doctor this week. Um, older black gentleman. And I'm so grateful for him because of the time that he took with me and his response of like, Oh, they threw a sledgehammer at your illness. That wasn't like, these are unnecessary responses. Like we're going to go in softer. We're going to deal with like you as an actual person, call me like any name, different dates to call him and follow up and check in. And I was treated like a human being <laughs> um, who like that we're not, uh, it's not a paint by numbers response to illness where you have to actually take care of the person, the individual. Um, and that was a really beautiful experience this week, but it's not the norm. Mm -mm. It's ridiculous. Gosh. And it's so, it's so, it's so unfortunate that you have to fight so hard to find a good quality doctors who will actually listen to you and work with you and answer your questions and spend the time um, I mean, I've, I've been through that with other diagnosis, um, that it was just, oh, well, like your postpartum, like you just had a baby and everything was because I was breastfeeding and just had a baby. And it was like this, you know, male that was basically, I was like, this is, does not sound like it's, I don't think that that's it. And wanted to just put me on medication for something that I didn't have. Mm. And I had to step out. I had to do the research. I had to find other doctors that would actually accurately diagnose me and care for me. And it, you know, on top of just having a baby right. and it's, it's, I mean, the whole childbirth and that whole experience is a whole other thing. Like, 
but you know, it's, it's, it's exhausting on top of everything else that you're trying to deal with. And imagine people that don't have resources or just listen to a doctor and just say, okay, I'll take this medication. And it may not be accurate or what they should be doing. And I certainly don't want to like vilify doctors because there are, you know, amazing doctors out there. But, you know, as you were speaking, Darren, there's a history of harm in, and I think mistrust in the medical community with people of color. I mean, when you were speaking, I thought back to, you know, birth control is looked at as like some, you know, this amazing thing, this amazing reproductive, you know, advancement. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, that was something that, you know, I, I think a third of the women in Puerto Rico were sterilized yep. and experimented on, you know, by, I think it was a company Procter and Gamble. Um, I think it was in like the, third yeah. I don't I don't know the exact time the timeline it might have been 30s. like the 1930s 30s. Yeah. but 30s. it's like yeah. so then you know a lot of like the stereotypes of like Latina women and like you know always having babies and not being on birth control it's like okay well let's talk about the history of the mistrust of like you know well, of course there's probably why. some religious and purity culture the aspects of it but like also you know <laughs> let's you talk about the history <laughs> yeah that like, you know, women were literally sterilized in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was just looked at as a place to like experiment mm -hmm. and birth control. And that's the history of, of birth control that, you know, has founded, you know, now, you know, this great advancement. But we can't talk about the advancement until we talk about the pain and, and all the, the damage that it did to many, many women. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing is, it's not a... I mean, yeah, there was Puerto Rico in the 30s, which someone could be like, oh, the 30s. Um, there was also California in the 60, 60s and 70s. I mean, there's an entire documentary, No Mas Bebes, that's about um, the forced sterilization uh, of me predominantly Mexican women in California. And not only do we do it in our own country, but we have been known to do experimentation on um, Latin American women. I'm sure other countries as well. I just want to speak to my own community um, in South America. Um, to be funded by by our government and then have testing done on the women in those countries. And people are like, oh, like I kind of made a joke when I got I got my vaccine um, for COVID this this past week. And I was like, well, once all the rich white people started getting it, I was like, all right, I'll do it. Um, which kind of sounds like I'm joking, but like for real. <laughs> right. For real. But it's true. I'll let y'all go ahead first. Like, There's historical precedent here. <laughs> Yep. Getting your getting your yep. shots, and then I will get, go get my shot. Until then, I'll stay locked up in my house. Um, but that's real because we have a recent history of this stuff being done. We have hysterectomies being forced on people in detainment centers right now. Right now, um, right this is not a a history now. or a past nope. of trauma and uh, and pain, med like medical oppression, but it's a ongoing traumatization. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned another thing in there that uh, often is a taboo, do not touch, don't talk about topic. Um, and that is being being fat, being a curvy woman, being whatever these mm -hmm. things. And I've heard you really name these in some powerful ways. Um, and I, I know that there's medical implications and also church implications. Mm -hmm. uh, could you share it? Could you, could you crack that egg open for us? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, since we were talking medical stuff, I'll, I'll start there. Um, so I can, I'll speak to my experience. One of, so I finally got on health insurance. Um, I've got to make such an inappropriate joke, but I was like, people who don't know me are going to hear this, but <laughs> like I married my white husband and finally got health insurance. Yes. Um, so <laughs> come on for the come up. <laughs> we came to the U S to marry upwards. It's yes. health insurance, not white people. No, but but in all reality, like I went, I finally went to the doctor and was able to get care that I haven't received. Um, in a, in since I was a child, there were certain doctors I hadn't like hadn't seen. Um, and so, what was very um, triggering for me when I did finally start having all of these appointments um, was that paid me every single time, no matter what I went for. Like I could be like, I'm here for an eye test. Great. Let's get on the scale. Like, <laughs> I don't really know what you want to measure my eyeball. Like, uh, so that was very triggering for me, not because I have a problem with being fat. I've done a lot of work to be comfortable and, and try to accept my own body and even love and celebrate my own body. Um, but because it creates an idea that like, you're going into these appointments, you being the medical professional where my size is like your primary focus. Um, 
And for me, I have a history of um, disordered eating and being forced often in a hallway while other people are walking back and forth to get on a scale um, and then have my my size said out loud is very triggering. Um, and so one of the most powerful moments I had was, was finally going in and saying, like, I had to prep myself, like practice and kind of like hype myself up to go in and say, just the words, I prefer not to be weighed today. And ready myself for the fact that some doctors will refuse you if you don't get yourself weighed. They'll say, well, then I can't see yep. you today. Yep. Um, wow. Which yep. is bullshit. But, um, but just things like that, asserting myself and being like, I'm not going to be shamed for my body. You have my weight in my chart. It hasn't changed since the last six appointments you saw me for in the last three months. Um, like, you don't need that right now. Can we focus on why I'm here? Um, not everything is because of my size. And, and it shouldn't take hyping yourself up just to say something like that. Right. The amount of self-awareness and self-advocacy that that we have to create just to do something like going to a doctor. Yes. And there's people who've never had to deal with any of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Gosh. I'm curious to touch on a, a, a little bit because you mentioned um if I if I can, you mentioned disordered eating. And you know, I I I what came to mind was just like diet culture and mm-hmm. like all the, you know, different ways that you know food and diet and there's this new thing and this new trend out and how maybe that might have affected you just in general but also like culturally you know a lot of these things you know well let's you know get rid of carbs and it's like well okay if you look at like you know a lot of foods in like latino culture it's like well I was raised on eating right into beans. Like, you're not going to take that away from me, you know? (laughs) So it's like the aspect of like, I feel like the diet culture in itself is toxic, but then like the recommendations when you are seeing a nutritionist Mm -hmm. that I'm just like, where's the Latino nutritionist? Like (laughs) that is going to recommend things that are related to food that I'm used to eating. That is of my culture and not tell me that everything that, uh, that is of my culture is, is unhealthy. Yep. Yeah, there's actually someone I follow on Instagram who's called the Latina nutritionist. Yes. I love her. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know. She that so she's kind of what I was like, yes, where have you yes. been all my life? She's like, eat your rice. She's always like sitting there with her little signs, like, eat your rice. <laughs> um love it. I'll have to look her up. But, yeah, but it's I mean, huh, yeah. I mean, diet culture is everywhere. And it's a con- it's a colonized mindset. It's a mm-hmm. it's a Eurocentric mindset. Um of what the goal is, like the goal of that dieting is, is to, to get a very specific body type and to present in a very specific way. Um, and for a lot of us, like we never will, we could diet our entire lives. And that's just not how we would look because we were born with a different curves in different places and hips and behind and chest in a different, in, in a different way. And we're just never going to fit that mold. Um, so it sets a lot of people up for failure. It sets everybody up for failure. Cause even if you meet the mold, you're like, life is miserable. Um, cause who doesn't want to have some rice? Uh, so, <laughs> um, but I mean the example you like, so yes, I trying to avoid all of that and, and not be overwhelmed by that. I mean, I love a good block button and every time advertisements, because they're very, they're they're aggressive in their fear mongering. And so most of the advertisements that I see on my social media are for waist, like waistband um, shaper things and for diet pills and teas and for diet plans and all this stuff, none of which I ascribe to, but just something about the algorithm tells those marketers that's a fat woman, prey on her, prey on the fear. And it is almost what I see entirely. And so I spend, anytime I come past it, I'm just like, report, uh, scam, report, scam. Yes. Yes. That's good. One of my favorite things to do. (laughs) You probably won't lead anywhere, but I'm going to keep calling you a scam. Report, scam. I love it. (laughs) These are like Um, marching orders. Yeah. It's like, I don't want this on my timeline. Get it out of here. Um, So like trying to remove that stuff. Um having, I mean, we've had conversations because my husband is a tall, slender man. We've had conversations about, um, who's wonderful, like celebrates my body, but at the same time, he's internalized certain like language or phrases of like, oh, I'm getting a, you know, getting a little this or not to me, to him, like, or like, oh, eating something. It's like the language we use that is inherently fat phobic that we might even realize. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
we've had conversations about like, we don't, what we don't say in our household and like how to be positive in our household. It takes a lot of intentionality um, because everything is setting us up for failure. Um, it's really difficult. Yeah. Uh, there's um there's also the aspect of this of how that shows up in our ideas in church um we talk about i mean one there's a part where we have positioned women and their entire existence as the trip and the stumbling stone for men mm-hmm. and we have so we have burdened women with the responsibility of covering themselves up, of minimizing themselves, of desexualizing themselves for the sake of these poor, innocent men who are just waiting to be to be caught up. Um, what was what was growing up in church context like for you as a woman of size, who's curvy, who's gorgeous, who's got, you know, uh, dark flowing hair, all these other things. What was, what was that like for you? So, so I became a Christian in college. I got involved in my college ministry my freshman year. I was 17. Um, and I went from really quick story of my background. So my early childhood was with an adopted white family that brought me over from Venezuela. Um, and diet culture and body shaming and stuff was private, very prevalent in that household with my adoptive mother. And so I already had a lot of body issues. Um, then ended up spending most of my childhood in group homes and foster homes, mm-hmm. um, where I was surrounded by predominantly black and brown children and black and brown people running the homes, staff members. Um, so I went from very white to surrounded by, by my people to this college ministry that again was very white, very conservative, evangelical, uh, Methodist, you know, Wesley ministry. And I mean, there were, (laughs) I, I was, I was one of the only people of color in all the years I was on staff with them, you know, after being a part of it and all the years that I was part of that ministry, one of the only people of color to walk through their doors. Um, so very white place. And part of that meant that, um, when it was a white place that also ascribed to purity culture, the standards again, make it so that you cannot as a woman of color succeed. You cannot fit the standard. I could lose any amount of weight. I can put on any amount of clothing to cover up. I cannot change my curves and I cannot change my skin tone. Um, and I've had this rack since I was 12. It's not going anywhere. There's nothing I could do. So like <laughs> Jesus was going to have to deal. Everybody was going to have to deal. Um, but there were instances of shaming. There were instances of being told, literally being told, oh, by good godly Christian men about their interest in me. But, oh you know, privately not behind closed doors. I can't oh, wow. be with you. Like literally been told you're Brown. I, that's not a thing that can happen. Like, um, and so I, those are all again, still in my late teens, early twenties, those are formative years. It really jacked me up for a long time about what my worth was. Cause I was being told simultaneously. And I've been talking about this a lot with folks recently about this weird, um, thing happening at the same time where you're being simultaneously told you are so sexually dangerous as a woman that you are responsible for either helping men become the men of God they were meant to be or making, making so that they utterly fall into sin. You're that dangerous. Somehow I was that. And at the same time, you are undesirable. You're not what men want. Your shape and your color and your like everything about you is wrong. And throw on top of that, that you're mouthy. I was called intimidating a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow I was everything that they couldn't possibly want and everything they might want and therefore was dangerous. So I don't really know how wow. you do both at the same time, but I managed they, it. They didn't want to call you a leader, but they <laughs> but they wanted to call you bossy, huh? But I'm dangerous. <laughs> and dangerous. Hmm. <laughs> And to not be not be intimidating. Mm-hmm. And to not oh, be I was told I was intimidating. Loud. So or and I find those stereotypes to be very attached to you know, Latina yes, women that were loud. That who was it? The man we all hate, John Chris, that you know, uh, talked about loud Latinas. And uh, it's excuse like on me, one hand. Excuse me, this is a family show. Please don't say <laughs> those sort of things here. Thank you. <laughs> And I said on the post, we should have left them in the trash. And here I am talking about them. But <laughs> it's it's this, it's like on one hand, it's it's I like I try to take that stereotype back as like empowering because I'm like, OK, you know what? I am loud. What's wrong with being loud? 
you know, but then it's also always like a negative thing too. Like, you know, we're going to cut someone and we're going to be, you know, like, here's what, you know, dating a Latina woman is like, and you're going to, you know, she's never going to admit she's wrong and all this type of throw stuff at you if you fight. (laughs) Right. Right. But then at the same time, we're sexualized as this, like, you know, the spicy Latina and hot and Mm -hmm. like, So it's like all these stereotypes that are thrown at you at the same time. It's, it's just like, it's exhausting sometimes trying to like, (laughs) what do you want to be? Am I supposed to be sexual? Am I not supposed to be sexual? Cause I'm not supposed to, you know, in the church context, be responsible for your sin. What is it? (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, you can't win again. It's a game. It's a rigged game. And, and that was my experience for most of my formative years, first becoming a Christian and coming out of evangelicalism um, and working, on, which is an ongoing project to decolonize my faith and my spirituality, um, has helped me to address some of those issues, but it's probably going to take years because it took years to do the damage. You yeah. used a word there, mm-hmm. decolonize. Yes. Unpack that for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is such a, uh, hot word right now. Mm-hmm. Um, which half of me is like, I love that it is. And the other half is like, none of y'all know how to use it right. So be quiet. Uh, <laughs> well, set, set the record straight. Let the people know. <laughs> um, I think particularly to be blunt in like progressive Christian spaces. Talk about it. People can't see me doing Air funny years. But, <laughs> um, but in these spaces that like picked a word and like ran with it. Um, mm. it they, it's so individualistic like a lot of Christianity, people ran with it in the way they were taught how to run with things out of evangelicalism and mm-hmm. which was to make everything very individualistic. Um, and decolonization is inherently not an, an individualistic project. Um, but so people tend to think it's like, oh, just unlearning things for myself and learning to love my body and like know Eurocentric beauty standards and like, yes, yes, all those things. But it's also um, returning, like it's about indigenous it's about returning, literally physically returning land. It's about um, uh, honoring treaties that are still currently in place and have yet to be honored by, by the U.S. government. It's advocating of things. It's putting our bodies on the line um, in acts of true solidarity, not allyship, um, but, but true solidarity. Um, that, that This is decolonization. So it's, a, it's either a dismantling and restoration of different things that acknowledge indigenous um, worth and existence, because we're not, indigenous people are not a, a thing of the past. Um, it's that, and it, and it's actually a, something that involves goods and land and property and resources, not just mindsets. Yeah. Um, I think we tend this- to do the first part the second right well that's because it's you know actually requires people to be to to be uncomfortable and to change things that that have benefited them i mean it's it really it really is the hard stuff i i find it i really like connect to it because you know my family's from puerto rico and i'm like we're still a colony Mm -hmm. let's stop calling it a territory let's stop you know no it is a modern day it's a colony and what is going on there that is not you know, being spoken about, um, about land, you know, how is it that 80% of the food is imported yeah. and mm-hmm. subjects to the Jones Act, you know, and the, the land is being bought out and it's supposed to be protected, but you know, the way the government's set up there and it's, you know, I'm following so many different like movements right now that are like trying to fight for the land because people are coming in with money and buying up and building luxury apartments on land that is supposed to be protected for mm-hmm. agriculture because people there cannot grow their own food yep. to survive and food is so expensive. And then people are leaving Puerto Rico. So now, you know, it's a touristy area. Oh, because it's part of the United States. I, I mean, I can get in a whole bag. So I'm sorry because no, I'm, I'm it's, it's raw and it's fresh <laughs> because like I, you know, I just like I've been following, you know, some people there. Um, and just even talking to my own family that are like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we used to have land and we used to own land. And then, it, you know, and so I'm just like, how is this still happening? And and like, I I mean, I just got so angry last couple of weeks just with some stuff that is currently um, going on with land that, again, is supposed to be protected. And a seller currently is has bought out um, land and the community there is at risk for, you know, their access to the beach, the land that was supposed to be there for them to to grow food 
right. to sustain. And so it's, it's so frustrating. And I, I'm like this, this is, this is insanity. And yet, you know, many people are fighting for statehood, which, and you know, that's a whole other thing <laughs> that can be going, you know, different ways, but you know, it's yeah. Puerto Rico is not lazy. No. People are taking, still taking from the Island. And it's like the people are just disposable. Yeah. It, but I mean, we have citizenship. So, you know, there's that, but we can't vote for the president, but right. we get taxed higher than like, you know, several States that more than, more than a few else. States in the United States. Where, so. Where's the Tea Party showing up for that? Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you say, how is this still happening? It's happening because colonization is an ongoing thing. Um, so it takes con- consistent, persistent resistance. That was very repetitive. That did not come out well. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, say that again. I want to. I want to hear that yes. one more time. Um, consistent, persistent resistance. Woo. Um, <laughs> Um, But it does like it's an ongoing thing to fight um, because they're always finding new ways to cause harm. I am going to put a link in the show notes, though. So if anyone wants to donate to the cause that is going on down there to help fight and protect the land, you will have that opportunity. Love it. Love it. Um, we have, we have hit a bunch of topics and I am going to, to, to tug on your coattails one last time for your teacher hat, because I absolutely love the way you teach. You've inspired so much in me about how I teach and the ways that I approach it. Um, one of the things that I often invoke your name about is, uh, intersectionality. Mm. And, um, if you could, you know, in our last few minutes, just, uh, teach us what that is and um, teach us how it relates to to this beautiful portrait of your story that you've shared tonight. Okay. Um, yeah, we're just going to do all the words that people keep using and, all don't, the know, words. and don't know. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Make a vocab list yeah, for like, it, everyone. <laughs> you've been using this incorrectly. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, intersectionality is... I'm going to try and not get too teacher and be like, oh my gosh. Um, Bring it all. (laughs) There are a few things that I really, really want people to know. And one is just like intersectionality is so much more rich uh, than than what we have diluted it to. Um, So it is not a buzzword to mean, oh, I have multiple identities or, oh, there there are multiple identities in the room or in this conversation. That is not what intersectionality is. Um, Really, really long story short, um, comes from professor and scholar um, Kimberly Crenshaw out of uh, the 1980s um, and was based off of a case, Reed versus um, Ford Motors. And the idea was there were Black women who were saying, we are you know, we apply for jobs. We can't get the jobs that the men have, which are in the factory, the the white, um, the black men, and we can't get the jobs that the women have, which are in the office, the white women. And um, it's it's not fair. We're, we're be, it's being discriminated against. And the argument that the judge came back with for why they did not win their case was, well, you got two chances up at bat. You can't argue for two different things. Either you're not getting it because you're a woman, you're not getting it because because you're black. Like, what is it? Um, and what uh, Crenshaw came and wrote about was, it is a, they were not bringing up two separate issues. They were bringing up a, a new distinct issue, which was the, was the intersection, ding, 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 of, of race and gender. And that that creates a unique form of oppression that neither black men nor white women could experience, uh, but that black women could. And therefore it wasn't two different forms of oppression going on at the same time. It was one unique new form of oppression based on two identities. And so the idea within sectionality, within intersectionality, is us needing to take an approach to the work that we're doing, work for justice, work in movement spaces that allows for and acknowledges and centers the reality that there are people with multiple identities experiencing new and unique forms of repression based on those overlapping identities. And that requires creativity that has new solutions, new ideas that don't work in the same way they do kind of one-off issues. Yeah. Ooh, that was a lot. I tried to say it real fast. Did I get it, it all in? It was good. It was good. Yeah. 
I'm forever <laughs> impressed. Always. That is intersectionality. So please learn it. <laughs> and and I think that again, just like that lived embodiment of your teaching, of the work that you're doing in the world, um, it really does reflect the ways that you experience unique oppressions mm-hmm. and have unique advantages, you know, unique uh, privileges as well. Um, and it's just one of those things where I feel like I feel like we can get a long way, not all the way, but a long way in just increasing understanding, increasing empathy, uh, being more aware of ourselves and, and how we show up to a conversation, um, as well as being aware of others and the things that they maybe haven't named. Because mm-hmm. um, there's, there's, there's just so many assumptions that happen and assumptions about people. But if we look at history, if we look at um, the state of our world, if we look at what's been going on, if we listen to the women, if we listen to the to the people of color, if we if we really become intentional about that, I think we'll see a much more rich and a much more accurate picture. Um, and what I'm leaning into is this idea of how do we become more sustainable? How do we make sure that we can live lives, that that we can work instead of working for survival, that we can work as the form of just expressing who we are, um, instead of working to, to be heard in a medical office or in a, in a church leadership room, instead we can just be honored for who we are and how we show up in a space. Yeah. Um, so we are, we are wrapping up, but uh, I would love for you to, to take all the time, brag on yourself in all the ways Tell us all the things that you want people to know how to contact you. And I'll give a reason for this. I am finding that part of my own trauma response of being told that what I was doing wasn't valuable or whatever is to always under, understate what I do. Mm-hmm. To always underlist those things. So I want you to just live into saying every possible thing you want to say about who you are, what you do, and why people should, should follow up with you. All right. Um, okay. Um, well, to learn more about me, there you have my website you can go to, which is browneyedamazon.com. Um, and you can learn about all of the things that I do and the, the ways I'm moving through the world uh, by visiting the website. Uh, but the things that I am doing are... Um, as I mentioned, I'm independent practitioner, so I'm working with a lot of different communities around the country on all of these conversations on topics about um, issues related to gender and race and decolonization and LGBTQ inclusion. Um, I have been working on creating a framework for the last few years that I call interlocking justice. And part of the, the core heart of it is that um, I do not believe in, I, you can be focused on one issue, but I do not believe that there's such thing as one issue work. Um, and so that's really at the heart of how I approach things. Um, so yeah, I, I offer teaching and training and consulting to communities that need it. Um, I do uh, a lot of more and more frequently uh, one-on-one coaching with people who are just really trying to like have all the questions that they can't ask in the workshop or in, or in the, you know, whatever it may be, but they really want to do the difficult work that takes um that takes time and energy. And I do that one-on-one with folks related to these, specifically to these topics about how to grow in this. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I'm an artist and a writer. So that, that work is always out there and about, um, and it is all reflective of, of these things we've been talking about, about the things that I'm, of the things that I'm passionate about. Um, so yeah, you can go to the website, browneyedamazon.com. I'm basically browneyedamazon everywhere on the internet from like TikTok to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook. Um, the only difference is um, on Facebook, I'm also Brown Eyed Amazon on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. It's B-R-W-N-E-Y-E-D-A-M-Z-N. So I dropped a few letters, but you search for Anna Jelsey. I'm one of like two in the world. It's a little easy to find me, so. <laughs> um, but I'm out here and I love connecting with folks and talking about how we can do this together. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Well, that's been another episode of the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast um, with our special guest, Anna Jelsey, who has just uh, taught us and rocked us and been vulnerable and transparent with us. And so uh, go support her, support the work, um, amplify those voices. We all have a responsibility or a role in how to make the world better. 
And if you listen to yourself, if you listen to your own story, you will find your role in that as well, um, as Anna Jelsey so beautifully has shared about, uh, about her work. And so uh, we hope to see you next time. Well, not literally see you because that would be creepy, but (laughs) that you tune in with us next time. And uh, thank you for being here. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, the show notes will have all of our social media and our email address. Um, And uh, yeah, we appreciate you. We love you. Talk to you soon. Sunday night football. Get ready to rumble. Okay, no.